Hey sister, welcome back to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. As I'm sure you've heard more times than you can even count, we are in unprecedented times. This phrase has been thrown around to describe this new way that we're all navigating life. This pandemic has universally required every one of our sorority chapters and communities to reevaluate how they operate and value the sorority experience. However, I feel like it's important to note that throughout our sorority's history, different campuses and chapters have had to navigate unprecedented times before. As many of you may remember, in the spring of 2016, the hashtag HearHerHarvard started trending on social media in response to Harvard University's proposed sanction policy, which would ban single-gender organizations. Our rock star guest today was actually a member of Delta Gamma during this time, experiencing this tension between the sorority women who were advocating for spaces where they could thrive on campus and the university who didn't feel like this was a place that sorority life and other women's only organizations was meant to be. Camille was even elected chapter president and willingly took the position in between this policy being proposed and put in effect and led her chapter through maximizing the sorority experience and the opportunities that were presented to them in between the time that it was threatened to be taken away from them. I don't know about you, but I have never had to fear the opportunity for sisterhood to be permitted in my college experience. In a time that can be so confusing to know if sorority is worth it, I am really excited for you to get to hear from my new friend, Camille, and what it was like to be a sorority woman during a really difficult time to advocate for that experience. Welcome to the Your Sorority Journey podcast, Camille. So, so thrilled that we could have you on to share your experience. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk about my experience in DG and just some thoughts on panel limit where Panhellenic stands right now. Yeah. Where in the country are you? Yeah, I'm in Nourishell, New York. So it's a suburb just outside of the city, kind of hunkered down here, which is home for me for the pandemic. Mm, where were you? Did you like go back there from somewhere during the pandemic or um, have you been there for a while before then? I actually moved um, in June. So kind of halfway through this pandemic from Pennsylvania. I had been doing a fellowship out there and just really missed my family. And when COVID seemed to be lasting a lot longer than all of us thought it would, I figured it was time to come home. Good for you. I just went home to see my parents this weekend and home for me is in Portland and Portland, Oregon on the East coast. That might be (laughs) a different Portland. Um, I always forget that there's one in Maine too. Yeah, the one I think in Portland, Oregon, or the one in Oregon, I think gets more like news, like keep Portland weird. I know very little about Portland, Maine, but I know it exists. So I feel like I need to clarify, (laughs) (laughs) but I was the same way. Like I didn't see my parents for, I don't know. I didn't see my dad since January. Like it was just such an important like reset for me. So I'm glad you've been able to spend so much time with them over the past few months. Yeah, moving home is definitely an interesting experience, though, after living six years away. I feel like sometimes I'm reverting to my high school self, just because that's the most recent time I have been, like, living here for this amount of time. Oh, totally. I think, for me, I feel, like, triggered by, like, either things in my room or... 
I like sharing a bathroom with my brother. Like if anything, I don't know if I feel 18 as much as like, I feel like my relationships revert back to when I was 18. Mm. Like the way my brother and I like get along in the house versus like on my college campus, just like looked so different. So I'm definitely in your boat there. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of the women who are listening will relate to that. Maybe they haven't graduated from college yet, but um, I mean, when the pandemic started back in March, like all these women got pulled from campus and sent home. If, if that was like their on-campus dorm or their on close to campus apartment that they was outside of school, um, housing or like home home. So it definitely was a life altering season for like living arrangements too. Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing college from, from my home bedroom. So I have so yeah. much like respect for the people who are making it work. So it's definitely hard and unexpected. Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, I'm honestly super excited to have you on today because I think that you, from, I don't know, I, I think if I was in your shoes, my appreciation for my sorority experience would look so different than one who never like feared losing their sorority experience or like never thought that could be an a opportunity not to like put feelings in your, um, not to like project feelings on you. But I just wonder how valuable this conversation is going to be to a woman who's like feeling like what she thought sorority was going to look like on her campus is now completely different, right? Like everything's yeah. changed. Nothing's on in person or even on campus for most of our communities. So I'm so excited to dive in and talk about your sorority journey. Me too. Um, so let's start maybe a little bit before your sorority journey. I want to know, I mean, obviously Harvard gets a big, has a big name, right? So I want to know like what drew you to Harvard to like attend there as a student and then later obviously go through Panhellenic recruitment. Yeah, so like I said, I've grown up just outside of the city, so I definitely was looking at more urban schools um, when I was applying to college, and Harvard does fit that bill being so close to Boston, and like you said, the the academics are kind of unparalleled, and that was a big draw for me, Um, but uh, one of the biggest deciding factors once I got in was um, the financial aid, and I think that's something that doesn't get a ton of... um, coverage when it comes to Harvard like people have totally this I would never perception know. <laughs> of Harvard as like um the school for people whose families have gone there for generations and generations and have donated buildings and I'm not saying that's not the case um, there are people <laughs> on that campus that fit that bill um but for me who like my mom is a public school teacher in New York single family household um I only, I knew I could only go to school like that if they paid for everything and that's what they did um, because Harvard has completely um, need-based financial aid. So whatever FAFSA says you can pay, um, they'll meet everything else up to that. Um, and wow. they've even gotten better since I graduated. They have, they give a startup fund is I think what it, it's called. And don't quote me on that because it might be something slightly different, but essentially for like students who are receiving the most financial aid, they'll give them a grant of about $1,000 or something their freshman year to buy things like a winter coat if they, they're not from like the Northeast area 
or um, all the things you need to move in, like your different like furniture or organizer thing. And I think that that was, that made the biggest difference for me. And then there was also a moment, um, our admitted students day, Visitas, where I just like kind of looked around campus and just felt like that gut feeling everyone talks about, um, which I know for some people doesn't happen, but it did for me. Both of the people I'd met were amazingly interesting, but also genuine. Um, and the opportunities that I just imagined I'd have um, available to me were incredible and like nothing I'd actually imagined college could be like. Wow. Yeah. That's definitely not what I think of when I think about Harvard is like the, I don't know, like opportunity or generosity that they go out of their way to meet students who don't fit the, um, I don't know the word that comes to mind is like accessibility. It's like, they're trying to like bridge the gap for students who may not have naturally thought that was an option that I even think about like Boston, right? Like I went to Arizona state there was like not much like clothing that I needed to survive like through an Arizona (laughs) winter, like even summer, right? Like just give me some sunscreen and I'll be good. But like in Boston, like you're toast if you don't have a big jacket and those aren't cheap. Or snow boots, boots, holy moly, or a hat that you lose most of your heat through your head. Especially since like my freshman year, I mean, it's changed with like climate change, but my freshman year, we had the worst winter Boston has seen in years. Oh my gosh. We broke all the records. I think we had like a hundred and something inches of snow. It was (laughs) so much snow that by, since they pack it so high on like um, grocery store parking lots and things like that to get it out of the way of the streets and pockets so densely, it hadn't melted until July. And like Boston gets hot in the summer. Oh my it just, gosh. It was so like nicely compact and together. It didn't melt until like end of July. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if you're a student and I just like, and I'm imagining like if a student who like gets admitted with I don't know, like who needs help to be able to attend a school like Harvard was coming from like, I don't know, the Southeast or anywhere besides like cold weather climates, they would just be like so overwhelmed. Yeah. Even as, even the Northeast, like I know I got a, and I bought myself a new winter jacket just because like things wear out and Boston is colder than New York. Um, And they really do. They're they're really trying. Um, They're not perfect. Harvard definitely has shortcomings and I could have a whole nother conversation of kind of like the duality of that experience of feeling so grateful to have gone there, but also seeing the problem. Mm. Um, But, and also I'm slightly biased because I did work as a, like my on-campus job was in admissions. So like, I do know the people who really are making um, their best effort in that role to try to admit both like a really diverse class and make it accessible for them to go there. Um, Yeah. But Wow. So I guess my question for you is like, so you've like, you're sold, you're going to Harvard. What was your like experience like when you got on campus your freshman year? And what about that compelled you to go through Panhellenic recruitment? Yeah. So Harvard did um, 
deferred recruitment. So we couldn't go through recruitment until the spring of our freshman year. Um, there were four sororities, so it wasn't a huge presence on campus, but it was definitely something you became aware that people were doing. Um, but it, it was definitely not like none of the, the organizations, at least the sororities had houses. So it wasn't like this visible Greek row, a couple of the fraternities did, but they were a little scattered and didn't necessarily have letters on them. Um, and, and when I got there, I mean, I did find some community. I was in a dance company um, and some other extracurriculars, but uh, I still just kind of felt like there was something missing. I, I just didn't quite find that place to, that I would always go back to and feel safe and accepted and appreciated. Um, that, that didn't feel like home completely. Um, I thought it was going to be through dance because that's where I found it in high school. Like I basically lived in a dance studio and it just wasn't quite that based on the structure of like most dance things ended after the shows for the semester were gone. Um, so I decided to go through recruitment. My two roommates um, had talked about it briefly, like when we were doing like the get to know you things over um, like a phone call over the summer. I didn't even know Harvard had sororities. I'd, I wasn't looking <laughs> for a sorority experience because no one in my family had been in Greek life. Um, but I, I was like, might as well try it. Um, also because I had kind of this weird story of when I was looking at colleges, a really good friend of mine who um, goes to, went to Yale, she graduated a while ago. I feel so old now. Um, oh, she, same. <laughs> when I was doing my college visits, it was actually her bed night. She had gone through COB, um, and the day I happened to be staying with her on campus, they were having their little like celebration, and she was had asked them if I could come just because we hadn't planned it. We had planned it so much more in advance that she didn't know that this was going to be a scheduling conflict, and they were totally okay with it. So welcoming, like asking all these questions about me. And like what I wanted to do and seeing her go through that night but also the the time after that um and really grow to love her sorority I was like there has to be something there if mm. um this person I really trust is getting so much value out of this organization and she had joined her sophomore year so it was also after she had already established a different community on campus um so I went through recruitment and fell in love with the woman I met. Oh, I love that. I think it is so funny because, and I'm sure you can relate to this, on the other side of recruitment, like when we're recruiting new members, we think that, I know, I think sometimes we assume the understanding or the expectation that they come in with, like mm. that they they want from our chapter, if that's like, I don't know, like sisterhood or community or I'm sure some of them want like greater access to like service opportunities and a lifelong network. But I don't know. It's just so funny hearing your story because I mean, I did a campus visit my senior year and met the girls sorority that I was staying with. It was like their Greek sing week. And so they were like dancing in a classroom. <laughs> like I was like, what is this? Right. I'm like literally there for 24 hours. And that was like three hours of my like Mine was visit. a little more low key than that. It was like 
um, Mexican food on a yeah. Tuesday night. That is so funny. But you know what I mean? Like, you never know what PM's assumptions are until you, like, tell them who you are and tell them what matters. And I think there's just so much to be taken from what you just said about, like, I saw what my friend had over Mexican food and I wanted that, you know? Like, sometimes it's as simple as that. I want, I trust someone that's in my life that joined a sorority. And so I know that I can trust women to like come alongside me, respect me, support me, encourage me. And I want to do the same for them. You know, sometimes it's that simple. And we like make this elaborate like story about how they found us on Instagram and like (laughs) walked by our house on campus. You know, it's like, sometimes it's just not that crazy. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So after you joined, I would love to hear, obviously, like, I'm sure people are tuning into this episode because they've either kept up or been somewhat aware of what happened on your campus in regards to, like, eventually banning single-sex organizations. And so I want to know, before we talk about what that experience was like, what you got out of Delta Gamma. Um, I know you took on some awesome leadership roles, but, like, what that felt like before the sanction policy was even discussed. Yeah, so I had two a year of membership about so my new member period obviously and it coincided with the end of my freshman year. Um and then I had my whole sophomore year is like kind of the, the before times to for kind of a dramatic phrase, but not really. Um and it was amazing. Like like I said, I fell in love with those women and it was because the first day, round one of recruitment, I remember um, Andy Mervis, one of the, the women in Delta Gamma, we were talking about politics and um, I don't remember the exact topic, but I think it was with like racial inequality in the schools, in schools or something like that. So not like light stuff, not right by any convention of um, like taboo conversation topics. Politics is definitely usually on there. Um, but the fact that both it, we were able to establish like this trust and rapport and get into a really substantive conversation round one was one of the reasons I just really was excited to go back. And I think that one moment was pretty emblematic of what I found when I really got to know the other women of just like these really passionate women who were also really passionate about getting to know me and getting to know what I was passionate about and how they could use their experience and knowledge being coming from so many different places and so many different backgrounds and so many different ideological realms of the spectrum on politics and on other things to advance me forward, but also advance themselves and make our campus and the world a better place. And that came in so many different forms of like the the really cute little informal rituals we did at chapter, like the bag of friendship that got passed around every week of a sister giving it to another one who was a really good friend to them for either that week or just in general. Or we also did snaps and shout outs to, to <laughs> let the I chapter know about all the amazing things people were doing. Because honestly, it was hard to keep track. Because while not everyone took a leadership role like I did in Delta Gamma, there were leaders in every single organization on a campus. You could find either a Delta Gamma or a Panhellenic affiliated woman. And 
that was really amazing to see, especially on a campus that sometimes is not the best when it comes to having tenured female faculty and, and still kind of feels like an old boys club in a lot of different ways. Didn't have it the worst because my department was very much run by women. But um, I know a lot of my friends who are in like applied math or some of the more STEM fields definitely felt that um, their sorority was this kind of breath of fresh air where they could Mm. see women running things all the time. What was your degree in? So it's called social studies, which people (laughs) get really confused by and I do too. Um, I like, You're like are we in fifth as, grade or am yeah, I? Yeah, so <laughs> the, the answer is, so do you want to become a social studies teacher? Do they have like a special track for that? Oh my gosh, um, that's so funny. It's just the, the title they decided they wanted their department that it's an economic, social, political theory kind of overview as a base. And then you get to make your own focus. So my focus is in women, culture, and political participation, which is honestly, I kind of took a title of a course I had taken and like slightly changed it up. Um, You like created that? Well, it was both. I created my own major and my major like required me to create it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love everything about the major you created. Like what a time to like use it. I just, yeah. I just love it so much. I I had so much fun taking the classes I did. They were genuinely things I was super interested in. And because my department was kind of, I like to call it choose your own adventure in the social sciences, everything in a social <laughs> science department was kind of up for, up for grabs in some of the professional schools too. So I actually took a class at the Divinity School, which is the class that I kind of stole the title of my focus field from. Um, with these two amazing women and it was gender religion and cult politics or something a transnational perspective was the course it was fascinating and that was technically like a major requirement for me because it fell under this umbrella that I had created for myself I love it I love the creativity I never actually would have guessed there's so much there would be so much flexibility at a school like Harvard um, or like freedom to really design the degree you want. Yeah. Well, they also do offer 40 something different majors and each of those um, departments are constant. They're actually called concentrations, which is such an unnecessary differentiation. Um, Just Harvard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They needed their own word for it. And minors aren't minors. They're called secondary fields. It's, it's a little annoying, but um, so they, they have so much different things you can get into. And if by some way, shape or form, that isn't enough for, for you, you can also create your own concentration. Um, a friend I knew from dance stuff created one of looking at dance and social movements. Hmm. So that was her major, um, which is really yeah. awesome. Well, something I want to like pull back from that you just said was that you felt lucky to be in a concentration or a secondary study or whatever you, the secondary field, (laughs) whatever it was that had a lot of female faculty, but a lot of places on campus, there just weren't many, like 
either like female influences or mentors for tenured faculty is the word that you use Mm -hmm. for the women on the campus like in your sorority to look up to, which made Delta Gamma even more of a safe place for not only you who had some of those women to look up to, but especially the women who didn't have those mentors or role models in their fields. And so I'm super curious to hear how that felt. And I know that you were in a leadership position when this happened, but when the university proposed the sanction policy on against single gender organizations like how was that received by your chapter how did it change your membership experience even just like the vibe of it through your graduation yeah so i was um vp panhellenic when the the policy came out so that was is delta gamma's equivalent of panhellenic delegate and um our panhellenic wasn't much of a presence in anything that wasn't recruitment before this happened. Um, Interesting. Just a kind of a nature of the campus. We all kind of, the organizations all were really busy doing their own things and we didn't do a ton um, altogether. Honestly, mainly because it was hard to find space since we weren't officially recognized as a student organization. We couldn't use, officially use any campus space um, for events or stuff like that. So like recruitment we held at a local um, hotel ballroom and stuff Wait, like that. I don't think I knew that. So Panhellenic sororities weren't registered organizations through Harvard no. even before yeah. the policy? Huh. They, they never were. So when um, Theta was the first organization to, to establish a chapter and then shortly after us, Kappa and Alpha Phi. Alpha Phi was a little bit later in the early 2000s. But um, we were founded in 1994, and since then, we were always an unrecognized organization. Um, so we didn't have a office of Greek life or fraternity sorority life, no official Panhellenic advisor through the school. Um, we could, there was some access to like on-campus resources like um, the DAPA was the drug and alcohol peer advisor groups. They still, like when we asked them to come to chapter meetings to do trainings for us, they still did that. Um, and other organizations like trainings on sexual assault and stuff like that, those, they weren't like, you're not organized organizations, we're not gonna do that. They definitely did provide us those types of resources kind of like unofficially. But when it came to any type of funding or just reserving a classroom for a chapter meeting or any of those kind of things that um, sororities are able to do on other campuses, sure. um, we didn't have. Um, we had a wonderful um, advisor who advised for Panhellenic specifically and helped us like run through the logistics of all that matching and stuff when it came to recruitment. And then each chapter obviously had its really great team of advisors um, for each position um, of local alumni. But when it came to actual university support, it was kind of a live and let live situation before the the sanctions happened. Like they definitely knew we existed. It wasn't like we were underground or anything before wore their letters around campus. Um, But it's not, they didn't take ownership or responsibility Mm -hmm. or 
any yeah. of those words that relate to being yeah. So interesting. So like they didn't want to like be basically liable if anything like wild happened. Like I'm not quite sure the reasoning. Um, I know that Harvard does not allow in a way organizations that have a national umbrella organization. So potentially that was the reason that they weren't interested in establishing um, official Panhellenic presence. Um, mm. They always want, I mean, they do have some organizations that have a, a national arm, but like the, the official rule in the handbook is something like all recognized student organizations, like Harvard rules supersede anything national or something like that. Mm. Um, so that's like a little niche, tricky thing. Yeah. And it, it's also because Harvard really prides itself in its house community. So the way undergraduate housing works is um, your freshman year you're in a dorm um, around the yard which is the central part of campus and after like February or March of your um, freshman year you get sorted with a group of friends that you pick um, into one of the 12 well 13 um, upperclassmen houses and that's where you live for the next three years and it's supposed to be kind of like a microcosm community um, where there are two faculty deans who are kind of like mom and dad of the house seems like a weird title, but like they do kind of occupy that space and um, tutors who we don't have RAs. So the tutors are people who are affiliated with the college in different ways. Some of them um, are grad students. Some of them are um I know admissions officers, some of them are tutors and stuff like that. So they have different affiliations with the school um, who kind of have their own entryway, which is our equivalent of a floor to do kind of that social aspect of study breaks and other things throughout the year, That's like so Oscar funny. parties, what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Harvard really prides itself on being able to create that community within a house. Um, and some, in some ways, it does a good job. Um, and in other ways, some people don't find community in their house because it is randomly sorted. Um, I actually transferred houses my soft, after the end of my sophomore year just because I did not feel connected with my house. It was far away from, I was a cheerleader. It was far away from where I had to go for practice four or five times a week. So it was inconvenient for my schedule. And I actually transferred to a house because I had so many Delta Gamma sisters that were in mm. that house. And immediately I was just so much happier. I like joined our HOCO house committee. That <laughs> is like the student organization in charge of creating some other social events in that house. So like I was the epitome of house pride once <laughs> I transferred. And mm. because I transferred to a house where um, I already had a community built in because of Delta Gamma. Yeah, I totally see why that, why the fraternity and sorority life system might inhibit their plan or their yeah. vision for these houses because fraternity and sorority life historically and stereotypically is seen as being like in physical buildings, right? When yeah. we have campuses where fraternity and sorority life thrives without houses, right? Normally, they have student space to meet, so it's a little bit different, but um, yeah, I, I do see 
why that could be the case. Um, that's so. We did have our own space. We did have each chapter to have its own space. Like ours, we called it the cove because everything needs to be nautical themed. Oh, that's um, cute. <laughs> but it was converted office space. Um, so it was like a open plan, open plan, like living room with a, the comfiest couch in um, all of humanity. Um, a little dining room table area and a kitchen. So it was good for sisterhood movie nights and stuff like that. But when we tried to fit the whole chapter of 180 women, which is what our size used to be in the spring when we had all four class years, didn't quite fit. So we had chapter again at that same hotel that we ran recruitment at. Mm, gotcha. But I went on a complete um, kind of like tirade there. Um, your question was about my experience yeah. before and how it changed. Um, yeah, so I was Panhellenic Delegate when it was announced. They announced it during final, um, which was lovely. I say very sarcastically. And was this you're already in trying. 2016? 2016, yeah. May yeah. 2016. So we're in the middle of finals. Um, I just remember opening the email in. I, I like to study in the dining hall just because food and coffee is always readily available. So I was sitting in a, a chair in the dining hall in my old house, Soho. And I just remember my heart sinking. Like I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what it was meant, what it meant. Um, and I just didn't expect it because there was no kind of lead up in any way, shape or form, like publicly or um, even to any type of leadership, because like I said, I was on our ex version of an exec board, CMT, and I had no idea that this was even a remote possibility. Um, and everyone kind of felt that wise from the enormous amount of numbers of messages in our group, me and people um, reaching out to others individually to posting about their experience on Facebook and why this, why they were so distressed. Um, and, and for those who don't know, like the policy as it was stated originally and how it took its final form, so it went through some deviations along those two years, um, was that starting with the class of 2021, um, people who chose to join single gender social organizations. So they made a point of putting unrecognized, um, would no longer be eligible for certain things, which included um, any leadership position in any Harvard recognized organization. So um, a secretary of the band or something like you could not take, you couldn't be eligible for that or president of the Crimson, the newspaper, like you could not be eligible for that just because of your membership. Um, you also couldn't be eligible for sports team captaincies or certain like post-grad fellowships like the Rhodes Scholarship and other um, other opportunities for, for your after graduation wow. life, um, which kind of just ran antithetical to everything that I had found in story, in my sorority of the reason I took on leadership roles, both in DG, but also in like the dance company I was part of or in 
um, on the cheer team, I was like the publicity chair. The reason I did most of those things was the confidence I had gotten from being in CG. Um, and I know that this was true for a lot of my sisters of like some organizations I wouldn't even have known about if it hadn't been for someone mentioning it on like our uh, email chain thing or someone. Well, you mean like recognized to... group, like recognized yeah. clubs, organizations they just like wouldn't have known about or gotten connected with if their sister hadn't told them about? Yeah, or that they hadn't, they would, they went to an event because a sister was running it and they wanted to support her and then ended up loving what the event was and joining that group, which I think is kind of universal in a lot of different places. Um, Right, sorority can be such a gateway instead of like a, I don't know, anyways. So for um, the punishment to kind of inhibit what I thought was really the core of the organization was I think what hurt the most and what um, really left me the most shocked because it was like they profoundly don't understand the organization if this is what the action they're taking. And also because of the rationale, like the reason they said that they were making this policy originally, um, they did change the reasoning a couple times along the way, was as a response to a campus climate survey that they had done. Um, on incidences of sexual assault. And I know so many women found being in a sorority really empowering because they knew people had their back and that they had people to talk to. Mm. Um, so that just felt, just felt fundamentally wrong. Well, and, and it did cause a shift on campus. Like, that was the summer that we had a protest um, during finals to just show, because everyone kind of came to the same conclusion that there must be a lack of understanding of how many women are involved in Greek life, um, what it means to them, and that they actually want it to stick around, um, that Panhellenic and the respective presidents of each organization came together with, um, we have these organizations called Final Clubs, which are operate similar to Greek Life without the national um, organization. And there were are a number of all female ones. So all those organizations banded together um, to have this show of solidarity. And that was the here Harvard protest. Um, and after that, it kind of just, the whole vibe on campus changed. Um, wearing letters was kind of, if you wore letters, you knew you were gonna have someone have a conversation about the sanction policy or was gonna kind of look at you a little bit like different, like, oh, you're still a part of that. Oh, you still think that's a good idea because kind mm. of the, the like trickle down effect of the policy was, um, Harvard was labeling all these organizations as problematic in a way. Pernicious was their word of choice for everything they mentioned about unrecognized single gender organizations. Um, well, and then just that, in terms of morale, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I, I want to hear about morale. I was just going to ask really quick, were there like female, like ex- exclusively like women's organizations 
that were registered on campus? Um, there were a couple in terms of like, there is a couple singing groups like acapella groups and one of the choruses um, was all women. I mean, obviously every single sports team, um, like the varsity women's sports team were all women. So there, there are a couple, but. But nothing like a social community. I mean, sports can be I community. Mean, nothing that was registered there there were a couple like affinity groups so um i was also part of abla the association of black harvard women and that was a um recognized organization but the kind of caveat um was that in the organization's constitution none of and never officially states like that for membership you have to be a woman um, that the organization is crafted around discussions about a, a specific identity. So like for ABBA, it's crafted around the experience of being a black woman, but mm. officially their membership is open to anyone who wants to discuss that. Um, and that was also, like I said, the rationale for the policy changed along the way. What it evolved to was this larger discussion of inclusivity on campus. And um, there was a large push for kind of an audit of all on campus recognized organizations to really make sure that they had that inclusivity language in their um, founding documents of that their membership was open to all undergrads who wanted to join, um, which I 100% stand behind. I just believe that there is a space for both that the way to become more inclusive is not getting rid of sororities it's to be championing these types of organizations so that there's an organization for people who want to be in a co-ed social organization or, or non-binary or all, sure. all the types of organizations i don't think we need to to get destroy and destruct to build mm, that's so good um, I had cut you off about talking about morale just because I was curious about on campus. But yeah, please talk to me about like how the chapter members like took this or like what it was like to be a member of Delta Gamma with this like impending ban. It felt like an impending expiration date. Mm. Um, it's like I think the best way of describing it, mainly because there was so much unknown and so it felt like every day something was changing of what the policy was going to be, how it was going to be enforced. Um, so there was so much uncertainty when it came to like actual logistical things. Um, and then it was a questioning of value of being, of membership of, have I made the right choice because this organization that is supposedly the the world-renowned expert on everything is telling me that it's wrong. And have I made a bad decision? Can I trust my own judgment? Can I trust the experiences I've had? Because um, I think what a lot of people felt, um, I know I felt it of just, how can I justify, like I worked my job in the admissions office because I was paying for my dues myself. Um, 
and especially not being a recognized organization and having to rent out space for every single thing we did, our dues were real, pretty high. Um, they were about just over $1,000 a year or something, which is not financially accessible to a lot of women. Um, mm -hmm. And so when it came to the calculus of like, I'm working eight hours a week or sometimes more to put all my money towards this organization that I find a lot of value in. But again, like this expert on everything is telling me that this is a pernicious organization. Like, who do you trust? Um, mm. So for me, it was a big thing of like finding my own voice and finding a way to trust myself and my judgment and then translate that into advocacy. Um, because I, I became president and chose to run for president um, during right after this. The was, right after the policy was announced. Um, oh my goodness. So we do elections um, in November. So November, my junior year, about like that first semester after the policy was announced is when I ran for president. Um, and a big part of that was because of like the opportunities DG offers. They do a leadership institute for rising juniors called the Lewis Institute. Um, and I was our chapter delegate for that. And it could not have come at a better time. Um, it was June. So it was about two, three weeks after. Oh my month, gosh. A month you probably after, needed that um, so bad. <laughs> I so needed it. And like, you know, sometimes the universe just hot, like aligns really well. Um, mm. We had small group facilitators. And mine was Bree, who was a Zeta Phi chapter alum as well. Zeta Phi is my chapter on, at Harvard. Um, so it was just, she knew what was going on. I knew what was going on. I cried so much um, and she cried with me and it was, it was perfect. And, and also there was a random connection of another woman who was um, her chapter delegate from Chi chapter at Cornell happened to be had gone to high school and happened to be really good friends with my best friend at the time in Delta Gamma so she was a hundred percent caught up and like knew what I was going through um, mm. and just to have like that support system um, but also support system that was giving me steps and mm. giving me the space to create an action plan um, yeah was well I think so I needed. don't know if I don't know if you felt this way when all this happened but being on your CMT is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, being on your chapter's executive board and needing to like be a brave face and like obviously you when you were like in the dining hall in your house you're probably just like like you said devastated but wanted to still support your sisters who like had to process all these emotions and I can only imagine how you felt being surrounded by all these sisters who were also leaders where you could just like not feel like you had to take care of anyone and could just like breathe and like grieve and make a plan and move forward. Because I think sometimes as leaders, we get so caught up in helping other people process what's happening that we don't take the time to process it ourselves. And I just hear this like release when you talk about the Lewis Institute of like, I just like had the space I needed to like process this like unimaginable it was the Lewis Institute, but it was also the CMT that 
I was blessed to have while I was president. Like I mm. could not have asked for a better team um, because CMT and everything about like what our chapter became really changed. Like Panhellenic actually kind of became a thing. Like we did some, um, we did like a philanthropy event together for the first time, a dodgeball event that was sponsored by Panhell um, to, to benefit the homeless shelter in Cambridge, um, mainly because we wanted to educate people of what sorority was, life actually was, because there was so much information coming because of the policy of how we were these pernicious organizations and stuff like that. And like I said, it just wasn't matching up what we had seen on campus. Um, so actually there was a lot more Panhellenic sisterhood that was like a really nice byproduct, if I'm gonna be really honest. I, I look for the silver lining and that, that yeah. definitely was one. Um, but everything about our CMT meetings, about chapter meetings and discussions, like you didn't wanna talk about anything else because mm. what's the point of planning the calendar for the next year if we don't know if we're going to exist yeah and like we still had to do all the, the administrative things and they still happened we still had formal we still had sisterhood events we still did foundation but it definitely was like everyone's position was what they were supposed to do and figuring out what we're going to do with the sanctions yeah so fast forward through the rest of 2016, now you're president, Panhellenic's closer, you're like still doing the administrative things. Like how did, I don't know, like obviously we know what happened in 2018. Like what was it like to like transition from like being president and like running this chapter that you're proud of with this like looming impending expiration date, like you said, um, to like actually see that come through to fruition I mean it was tough but I think like for like I described the women that were my chapter they were amazing they were leaders in their own right planners had a lot of ideas that were really great so that's what we did as a chapter we we planned um we had diff different rounds of committees to kind of flesh out um what we would do and what we wanted to do um, if this policy really did end up being kind of the law of the land, um, as well as one committee was specifically tasked with brainstorming ways to advocate um, and lobby faculty so that this wouldn't be a thing. But I think a lot of people found comfort in doing something and being prepared. Um, and so, while it really did feel kind of like our chapter was falling apart around us um, in a lot of different ways. Um, we lost a lot of members, a lot of people resigned. Um, I think when I graduated, we were, oh, I, I think it was, I don't even know we were, if we were at 80 women um, after having been closer wow. to 160 and 180 in spring semesters past. Um, and that was both a factor of people graduating and smaller recruitment classes and re resignations. Um, 
but I think a lot of people found comfort in like knowing that there would be a space knowing that there would be a legacy that took the best part of our experience in Delta Gamma and tried to replicate that in what would become the new norm. Um, so though I, I did have to vote to close my chapter and that did come to fruition, I think we all, it was a bittersweet thing because we knew that there was going to be something that was going to start in the fall that we had given feedback on and some more than others really created from the ground up um, that would hopefully replicate as much as it could um, the sisterhood, the, the empowerment, the networking, the, the service parts of our organization. And did those become co-ed groups? Um, yes. So the, the group that came out of Delta Gamma was called the Kali Proxy. Um, and they were all recognized social organizations. Um, and they had male members. And well, I also, like, it was inclusivity. So, it's, I, I mean, gender is non-binary. So I don't want to. I don't love the word co-ed just because I think it's a little too constricting. Um, but they did have members who didn't ident identify as women. Yeah. Um, so hearing like some news recently about Harvard dropping their ban, like how does that make you feel like looking back, gosh, two years later um, at like those hard decisions you had to make and those things you pushed through and what became of your chapter and the other women's organizations on campus? Like, how does that make you feel looking back on that now? Yeah, um, I don't regret anything. I think we did the best we could with the information we had. I don't think anyone thought it was going to be resolved this quickly. Um, Harvard didn't even, I mean, the Supreme Court case kind of came out of nowhere. And even when I, I was very much aware the decision happened, I just didn't realize that it applied to the, the, the court case that was going on with <laughs> um, Harvard and, and social organizations. I, I, I did not make the connection. So when I got the email um, from a sister who works for Harvard, um, I, I was like, wait, what is going on? Like I read it expecting there to be like a more stringent version of the policy or or it was like a here we go again was like what I was expecting from the subject line of like mm. it was something like update on single gender social policy or something like that. And then I read it and I, I was a hundred percent in disbelief. Uh, I'm hopeful um, that maybe this means that I don't know if, if sororities necessarily have a place on campus these days. Um, I've been out of school for two years and obviously COVID's changed some things of what college campus life looks like in general and with the different conversations about racial justice and and where institutions come from. I, I don't know that there's a place for, for sororities to go back on campus, but it does feel nice to to mm. kind of have that experience validated 
which I think was the the overarching feeling from, like I said, just going through that experience and like questioning your judgment of, I see value, am I wrong? Oh, I can't even imagine, right? You like make this decision in your best interest to seek female friendship based on like what you saw your friend had at Yale, right? Like, I can't imagine like having gone through that process of being like, wait, like you said, the expert on everything just said that I like made a bad decision. Like, is that actually the case or? Yeah, I'm glad you feel validated. I'm glad you feel. Yeah, I'm glad you feel that way because I mean, working full time to like enhance and restore the sorority experience, it like breaks my heart that you had this experience and that you felt for a second like this, like this wasn't right for you when there were so many things, so many doors opened because of it. And I don't know, like, I guess I'm just super curious, like what advice or like what wisdom you would share with sorority women who've like never feared like the privilege of their sorority membership, like being taken from them. I don't know that I have advice beyond if, I've thought about a lot about just the state of organizations and the place of MPC and similar organizations on campuses. I think just because there's a larger discussion going on about it these days as there should be. Um, I think there are problematic things in every organization and it's the only way that things stay is if they evolve. Um, and while it might seem that your organization is doing well now, like life isn't going to stay still and this, our organizations can't either. Um, and I think that choosing to be a part of something that empowers you to make that change is really special and, and powerful and especially for young women. Um, so I, I, it is a privilege and, and treating it as such is really important and not treating it as a privilege that excludes you or differentiates you in, in a way that is treat it with respect. And I think we need to make it more accessible to more people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think your comment about like nothing stays if it doesn't evolve like really resonates with me right now and the conversations that we've been having both on this platform and also like throughout the country around like the relevance of sororities if we are claiming to like be inclusive and like seek diversity in our organizations but not truly acting on it um and like this this summer, like in, I think in the wave of the Black Lives Matter activism, sororities really reevaluating, okay, we've said these things, we've made these promises, but like how thorough was our action plan? Like how intentional was our like initiatives to really change the experience for women who aren't largely represented in our groups? Yeah. And I think 
I think sometimes it's really difficult situations that push us to think differently, that push us to reevaluate what we thought we knew. Um, because if our organizations were still in the same place they were in like the late 1800s, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. You know, like I couldn't. Yes, be. <laughs> I literally could not. Would not be able to. Yeah, and I think sometimes. I think as sorority women, we are so afraid to own, I'll, I'll say this, as white sorority women, we're very scared to own the fact that our organizations were founded in a time that didn't include all of the sisters we have now. And I think it's hard for us to own that because like, oh yeah, we're not that anymore. But I think we need to go back to like knowing that's where we were to see some of the traditions and like lingering elements of that that still exist in what we have now and how it's inhibiting every woman who identifies as a woman to feel safe and like she belongs. And I'm not saying like our chapters aren't trying or like haven't made efforts, but I still think, and I mean, you probably have more um, insight on this than I do. I just believe that there are still elements of our foundation that have like come with us that don't serve us anymore but we like cling on to or like trickle through our history because it's like quote unquote what we've always done. Yeah. I think that every organization would very much benefit from doing a thorough audit of what their practices are, the structures that they have in place. Like I find it very problematic the way that, um, I don't know how other organizations do it, but Delta Gamma elects things like our um, executive board on a national level. It feels just so removed and so, like there, there's so many aspects of gatekeeping that would really keep younger members and therefore a more diverse pool of members from becoming um, like an, the the international president or the other women that really run the organization. Um, mm. And there definitely are being attempts made in different organizations in different ways. They just, they need to continue to happen when the spotlight's not there, when yep. it doesn't feel like, it shouldn't take the threat of it not existing for you to do the work. Mm. Oh, that's so good. Because I think when we feel pressure or when we feel like called out, that's when we act when really, and honestly, like, this isn't just because you're Delta Gamma that I'm saying this. I really do believe that Delta Gamma is probably more proactive than most. Um, we had a guest on talking about how our organizations and how our members can be like more involved and like take more ownership over diversity and inclusion and equity and access in their chapters. <laughs> and she was talking about like how impressed she was as a higher ed professional who's a woman of color, like how impressed she is with Delta Gamma and the efforts that they have made before this, before the activism in June, like they were working on things before then and were able to talk about them instead of other organizations who had to realign with these things that they said they agree with, these things that they say they stand by, but maybe have been unintentionally prioritizing. So, yeah. um, and I am really proud of the different efforts 
Delphiama has committed itself to. I'm just, as I think a lot of people from the IPOC background, skeptical of how long it's going to last. Yeah, um, rightfully so. Yeah. Like Delta Gamma is doing a three-year diversity inclusion audit um, that they had started, like you mentioned before, um, the activism or like after the George Floyd um, murder became public. And that is a substantive commitment to doing the work, but it's still, okay, three years is good, but it's that's not enough. Totally. And while it's really amazing to see like they've revamped our new member, I just, I advise for a chapter for new member education. And oh, it's that's really awesome. amazing to see that they have revamped that new member curriculum to really highlight diversity and implicit bias in some of these conversations. And mm-hmm. there's a recruitment training about it now as like part of our recruitment prep. But when I also hear kind of these horror stories from members of color either who recently graduated or who are like now in college of just like the micro and macro aggressions that they feel from their sisters or from their advisors or from their advisors not stepping in when something happens it just shows you how much work there's still to be done totally and so I guess my question to you with that, knowing that there's so much work to be done and I don't know, looking back on the experience you had in Delta Gamma, um, do you think the sorority membership, do you think the sorority membership is worth it? Hmm. I mean, I know I would not be the person who I am without it. Um, I, I still get so much out of my membership. Um, like I said, I, I advise for chapters plural this year I'm advising for two um and way to go been, I mean it was I was moving to a diff, I was supposed to be moving to a different city for law school and I wanted to continue advising and then I had already started um with a chapter where I was living in Pennsylvania and I just love those women and wanted to finish out their officer term with them so we overlap a little bit and that is I love that and I'm okay with that um and I, I've gotten so much out from advising and from making connections with women. Um, like one of my best friends that I made in Pennsylvania was the ATC of the chapter I advised for. We would have never met each other had it not been from Delta Gamma. And for, for one, one woman putting us in connection to, together of like, you guys need to get lunch. And she was right. We did. We really did need to get lunch because I call her all the time and would not don't know how to done the last year without her um so there is a lot of value I think that I continue to find but it is really hard to um kind of reconcile the good I've received and I'm getting known that it's not accessible to more women knowing um kind of sacrifices I made in terms of like I loved my job on campus but like what could I have been spending that money doing instead of paying for dues um or just knowing the women that it wasn't available to um and also the harm that it does cause because no matter how much we're getting better you also have to reconcile with the fact that like that process harms people the process of not 
training people adequately of what implicit bias is right regardless of people's best intentions you're making some feel excluded and that can have lasting effects without giving people proper training of how to react to a survivor telling you their story if you go automatically to victim blaming or trying to well I still want to mix with that fraternity or x y and z like that has lasting heart um yeah so there's value but there's also a lot of things we need to continue to talk about absolutely and I think that's like where my heart's at right now it's like okay the harm is unexcusable right like And the things that I have learned even since I've been a sorority member and I've traveled around the country, an active or a collegiate member, I've traveled around the country to work for Sigma Kappa and like had these different experiences and now aim to restore the sorority experience through the work that I do. You can't ignore that stuff. You can't just like push past it. Focus on like the fun and like not just the fun, but like the meaningful relationships because yes, those matter, but like at what cost, right? And I think it's super important for me and for like the women I talk to, to evaluate, okay, is this something better? Will, will our organizations make more of an impact if we dissolve and leave these problems with us in the past, or if we own them and move through them and evolve to be a better version of who we are now to still provide those relationships and provide an example even to society about how to own imperfect past, a harmful past, and create something better in the future. Because I think there's a lot of areas of society that are needing to like reflect and audit themselves too. And how awesome would it be if our sorority communities could be the ones that set that example or like be the model to follow? Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I like I'm really proud of the stuff Delta Game is doing because they they kicked it off of like announcing it to their members with this contextualization of our history and um we have our quarterly I think it is I don't actually know I think it's quarterly um magazine the Ankara they did a whole spread kind of owning some of those problematic pieces of our history and are continuing to do that history deep dive um as part of the audit yeah. Again, like I said, there's there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think if, if the work isn't done, I don't quite see that we can continue to justify the cost. Yeah, I agree. Camille, it was so awesome to hear your perspective. Thank you for your vulnerability and also your insight because I think your perspective from what you have experienced as both a collegian and an alumna, like watching your chapter experience and now advising, it's just so unique. And yeah, I'm just really thankful that we could share your story on here. Thanks so much for having me. After getting to know Camille, I just couldn't be more thankful for our mutual friend who connected us and just saw Camille's story as something that needed to be shared and needed a platform to be heard by more people. And so I hope that you consider it as much of a privilege and an honor as I do to really see behind the scenes into the heaviness that went into fighting for the sorority experience at Harvard University back between 2016 to 2018. 
I really believe that while none of us probably go to Harvard, there's a lot of transferable lessons and takeaways that can be highlighted toward the end of our conversation. Being a sorority woman is truly a privilege, and I think it becomes something that a lot of us just take for granted. I know that I did in various moments of my sorority experience. I think especially in a time where all of our flaws and flawed history is being highlighted, it is all the more important for us to fight for the true experience that we have and ensure that those past events never happen again. I believe it is important for us to own them, but also prove that we are willing to take action to not be doing more harm than good. In the wave of diversity and inclusion conversations that we've had over the past several months, it was really interesting to hear Camille talk about that as not an active sorority woman and how she believes the sorority world can do better and by doing better can have such a greater impact. Many of you who listen are still in that space to make a difference as a collegian, to bring your chapter sisters alongside you to make this change. And I would challenge you to do so. I would challenge you to check the areas that you are taking the sorority experience for granted and act upon it. Find ways that you can be more intentional as a sorority woman, even virtually, in this unprecedented time. Sister, we love you. We're here for you in navigating this crazy, unique season of the sorority journey. If this episode resonated with you in any way, if you found yourself nodding along or saying yes in agreement with what was talked about, we would love to hear from you. There are three ways that we would love to know how this how this podcast is impacting you and how we can better support you. The first is by leaving a review. When you go to the Your Sorority Journey podcast on Apple Podcasts and scroll down past all the episodes, please leave us a review so that we can know how this podcast and the content is impacting your sorority journey. We would also love it if you would tell your friends so they can get tuned into these conversations. And finally, shoot us a DM. If you have questions, if you would like to hear something, or if you just want to tell us what you think, feel free to shoot us a DM at Her Sorority Journey so we can know how we can best support you on your sorority journey.